The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous supporters. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash donate. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode number 79. I'm a doctor. I've lived for over 2,000 years. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Shush. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. Today we're discussing The Tenth Doctor, David Tennant, two-parter, Impossible Planet, and The Satan Pit. Not to be confused with either the Satin Pit or the Santa Pit. Those are two different things. <laughs> Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Hey, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Excellent. So just as a, to kind of a teaser for uh, at the end of the episode, we have uh, some uh, good listener uh, feedback we want to share with you on some of our previous episodes. So uh, stay tuned for that. But uh, first, let's let's talk about what we're talking about today. So we're talking about this very interesting two-parter, uh, the Impossible Planet and the Satan Pit. Um, it, is, it was from the David Tennant's first season, the second season of the of the renewed uh, series, featuring uh, uh, Rose as the as the Doctor's companion. And uh, this is the eighth and ninth episode of that season so it's uh it's what are we about is that but what's that season a little about more like, than halfway but a little more than halfway yeah okay so we're about halfway through um heading toward the end of rose's tenure as a uh as as a companion so we're starting to see uh and we'll maybe talk about this a little bit uh she's getting totally flirty with the doctor <laughs> that right yeah uh talking about mortgages um but uh, but also starting to get pre, you know, sort of uh, premonitions of Rose Rose has a fate that's coming. Um, so we'll so we'll, we'll we'll get into that I think. So the the basic premise is the Doctor and Rose show up on this planet, the TARDIS uh, on this planet. They're not quite sure where they are. They're in a cupboard. Uh, <laughs> the Doctor says um, they uh, they're on a space a space base on a planet. Orbiting a black hole, which is impossible. Um, and, and in the show, it's, they say it's impossible. Not impossible. I mean, things can orbit black holes. Well, I, I think I think the impossible part is how close it's orbiting. It should yeah. be getting dragged in. It's inside the event right. horizon, yet it's still. Oh, no, I don't think it's meant to be within the event horizon, just oh, no. within its gravitational, gravitational well. such that it would I, fall I must misspoke. Yeah. yeah, gravitational yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, maybe stip I'll stipulate up front, and it's probably not you know expected. Some of the astrophysics talked about in this episode is way off. <laughs> yeah. is, Some of the planetary <laughs> physics. I mean, this in, yeah. this planet isn't just impossible because it's orbiting a black hole. It's impossible because it's like 30 miles wide. And right. when you look yeah. at the diagrams of it and it's like, there's no way that this thing would be gravitationally rounded. Exactly. Right? Exactly. It's, a, it's an asteroid at best. Uh, right. Yeah. And uh, although we, we're told that uh, we learn later, it's constructed. So maybe, yeah. you know, that, uh, it's not maybe artificial, um, but but certainly the, the the way that the black hole works and how it's sucking things in. It's not how black holes work, but, you know, that it, way, you don't do way really too fast cool spirals you can sit and watch. Yeah. You can't yeah. just watch a, a solar system get sucked in while you're standing there looking at it. it, it, it yeah. That takes place over many, many thousands, maybe millions of years. Uh, but, you know, let's. Let's stipulate. I'm maybe a little more flexible on that one. I mean, we can see stuff falling into Sagittarius A star at the heart of our galaxy, and it just takes a few years. Well, uh, what but I'm thinking, still, it's not yeah. in a moment when you're watching it, right? It, we're we're yeah. like the, you're not going to stand there and go, "Oh, here goes that solar system," and it goes by. Yeah, like that. It's <laughs> yeah. not going to do that. So let's let's stipulate I, that. I I did like while we're on the science of this episode, I did like the fact that they didn't go with the standard science fiction cliche of black holes as tunnels to other universes because and, that or to other parts of our universe yep. um, because that would be a really cliched way of dealing with some of the story elements here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and Rose even brings up the possibility of the doctor and he doesn't say yes or no about other black holes, but he says, not this one. It just sits there and eats. Right. Yep. Right. 
yeah, they kind of uh, hit that one direct direct on the head, which was impressive, actually. Right. Um, also, apparently, yep. from what we can tell, uh, at least according to many models of how black holes work, if you fall into one, when you pass the event horizon, you don't even notice it. So unless you unless you are killed by the spaghettification, you would just seem to be continuously falling forever, which is mm -hmm. a nice uh, fate for the intellect of our villain at the end of the episode. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, real for, quick, I want to actually speak about fallen. it. <laughs> yeah, I want to speak about it. Uh, something I found out about our, our villain or the voice of our villain. By mm -hmm. the way, I want to bring this up here at the beginning. We have a connection to classic who. Oh, oh, yeah. The yeah, yeah. The voice of the be beast was done by Gabriel Wolf, who was also the voice of Sutek in the Pyramid of Mars story from the fourth doctor, Tom Baker. Mm -hmm. Nice. And, and we have another who connection, uh, which was the one I was thinking of to Doctor Who and the Damons. Um, the, uh, it, it, where we had the master, um, at pretending to be a church of England priest in a country village, uh, summoning the devil. And we have, it's the episode that gave us five rounds rapid, the famous line from the Brigadier <laughs> and, um, and the aliens in that were from the planet Deimos. And the doctor references Deimos in this episode as one of the planets where the horned evil figure archetype has appeared. And yep. so he referenced that. He also referenced um, uh, Draconis, another uh, John Pertwee era planet that had uh, kind of lizard men uh, mm -hmm. on it that uh, we met. And he referenced the Khaled God of War, uh, fitting this archetype as well. The Khaleds, of course, being the uh better of the um the the predecessors of the daleks yep and uh what we have in this story is it's really not about the black hole itself per se but about um satan is uh is, is yeah. where we're let you know the the beast or in in various other yep. things and um so so there's the devil and we'll get into some of that when we'll uh, as we go through. Uh, but one of the things we have is we have the first appearance of the Ood uh, yes. in, yep. in Doctor Who. Um, and the they're 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 pretty menacing in this one. Uh, but they don't start that way. But, it's only after they get possessed. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, they're, they're kind of creepy. And I, I have to admit that uh, many times at dinner uh, when we've had spaghetti, I've played cosplayed Ood. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh time to feed time yeah, to we, feed yeah. we must feed you if you're hungry um yeah uh, so, but something that's something that's probably worth pointing out about the ood is um they're based uh, or certainly appear to be based on the writings of hp lovecraft an american mm. horror author mm -hmm. from the early 20th century who is famous for writing what's uh, called the Cthulhu mythos. And mm -hmm. it's it's a set of weird stories, kind of a hybrid of fantasy and science fiction about um, uh, evil elder things. And the mm -hmm. one of the biggest evil elder things is a being named Cthulhu who has this octopoid head. And yeah. you, you'll often see illustrations of Cthulhu based on Lovecraft's description of, you know, having this kind of bald head and then these tentacles where his mouth ought to be. Yep. And that's where that, of course, it's based on octopi in parts, but um, that's where that image of a humanoid being with tentacles for a mouth comes from. And uh, and so that seems to be it. The Ood seem to be an homage to the Cthulhu mythos, and they actually are introduced in a in a in a kind of neat reverse Twilight Zone way, where they uh, first appear and they're holding their translators and they're saying, "We must feed, we must feed, we must feed," and then after the cliffhanger break, um, it, one of them shakes his translator, "You, if you are hungry." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's kind of the reverse of to feed man. <laughs> right, right. And eventually, you know, over the time, the Ood will become friends of the Doctor and they'll become key aspects of uh, helping mm -hmm. the Doctor navigate some uh, tricky things. Um, but here they, they're, they're, a, yeah, they become a, they're a slave race uh, mm -hmm. to the humans. Um, and this will be play out again uh, when the Doctor and Donna uh, are later on uh, go to an, right. a, a different planet where the Ood are. Um, 
Uh, but th- this, we can again, we can get into that in a sec. But uh, I just want to set the stage of. So, uh, did you have something, Father Corey? Oh, I was going to say they also had way too much fun with the uh, pairing of Ood and Odd. Yes, yes, yeah. That was <laughs> a little obvious. Yes, uh, Ood, you might say. <laughs> oh, a little obvious. Yeah. yeah. Um. But what the I kind of want to start with like that very first scene where the Doctor and Rose show up uh, in the TARDIS in the car and and they very, have this very cavalier attitude about the, the running into trouble. Like they're very yeah. like, oh, this might be too dangerous. Maybe we should go. Ha 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 ha! And they laugh it off like we don't we don't run from danger. And it it's almost it, it, a, it's deliberately made up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's winking at the audience. It becomes sort of a, but it comes becomes sort of a sign. I think over time in the new Who, um, that when the Doctor and his companion become very cavalier about the dangers they're facing, it it's it's probably time for him to move on to a different companion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You know, because it's becoming dangerous for the companion. Well, you see that, in, mm-hmm. and it is something, you're right, it does play out throughout New Who, because then you see it with Rory and Amy, Amy. and then you see it with Clara. Uh, Clara, definitely. Yeah. You know, so it's just repeat, repeat, repeat. Yeah, I mean, even Donna, I mean, Donna, she, you know, gets- Oh, she gets totally cavalier right at the end, which yeah. almost ruins her character. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Um, and then we have, and even Martha Jones is another one, uh, maybe not as blatant, but there's still the, some of this- as as each companion gets more comfortable with the doctor and more cavalier about the dangers they face, uh, the doctor has a you know either it's thrust the choice is thrust upon him like it is with Donna or and Rose or he has to make a choice and leave them behind for their own good, which is well, different from be, classic Who. Yeah. Oh, very yeah. much so. Very much yeah. so. Yeah. There they would fall in love out of nowhere and suddenly announce they're leaving to marry a psychopathic space pirate. Well, or, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Just or in get, one episode. At or the get, end of an episode. Yeah, or get <laughs> left behind, but because the Time Lord snatched the Doctor out of time and space for a trial. Something <laughs> <Yeah>. like that. <laughs> so, um, all right. So the, I just wanted to kind of talk about that uh, a little bit. Uh, but the Doctor changes quite quickly when they comes upon the strange writing that the TARDIS can't translate, which is, we have to kind of point out that the TARDIS... Uh, works as a translator, both visual translation mm-hmm. and auditory translation, just to make it easier to have a TV show in which they travel to all kinds of alien places and talk to that's, people. That's something they didn't establish until New Who. Um, right. They, 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 the subject came up in Old Who of why, do, why can we understand the language everywhere mm-hmm. we go? Uh, Joe Grant put that question, if I recall it was Joe Grant, put that question to the third doctor. And he responded by saying it's a Time Lord gift that he shares with her. But they didn't get into how it works, that it's right. the TARDIS doing it telepathically. I think fans or or the creators anyway were less concerned with trying to justify everything. I mean, that, that idea. I mean, Star Trek famously... They traveled to every planet, and every planet spoke the same language. You know, the, the, the there was no talk of or universal translators both, and all that sort of stuff. Even look at Stargate SG One. You know, the the original Stargate movie, they had to have uh, a linguist, a yep. linguist, mm-hmm. and then after that, everybody spoke English. Right and, after and, the pilot, everybody uh, the 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 trailer or the pilot of the series, everybody spoke English throughout the entire st- galaxy, and they, and they still had a linguist. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and and so. I get, I mean, for a TV show, you have to have a mechanism, uh, you know, uh, otherwise you're spending all the time reading subtitles and people trying to figure out how to talk to each other and that sort of thing. And while that's interesting for a, a movie uh, over the length of a series, that could become tedious. So, so I get for the exigencies of, of TV production. Um, and of course, yeah. you know, and Star I, Trek, Star Trek did the hand waving. Oh, we've got a device that does that. Yes. yes. Yeah. And <laughs> and that's and that's fine. And I can assume then that, OK, this is really I mean, the way this would really happen is, um, you know, they're they are using this device, presumably in their it's implanted in their ears or even in their brains. Right. Um, and and I'm just not seeing the mechanics depicted mm-hmm. dramatically right. or on Stargate. I would assume there's some galactic because all of the different civilizations are descended from Earth. Right. So uh, presumably there's some bait maybe based on ancient Egyptian. There's some common tongue 
mm-hmm. that's used on all these different planets that the crew of SG-1 has now learned the common tongue. Right. And they're just tra- presenting it to us in English because we, the audience, haven't learned that common tongue. The same way when you see Nazis talking in World War II movies, they're talking in English rather than German. Yeah. Most Brit- of the British time. English. British accents. Like, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I have. Well, I could. I could create some headcanon for Stargate, like the the gates doing it or something like that. Like like the TARDIS. So in in New Who, we we we've been told that the TARDIS itself uh, translates stuff for the, the yep. people who travel. It's got on. that the psychic link between the the travelers and the ship. Yeah. Yeah. But in this case, um, the the writing doesn't translate. It says "Welcome to Hell," which is you know, hey, you that, should have well, paid attention that in to that. English. Yeah, it says "Welcome to Hell" in English. Um, but then um. The writing, the doctor is really thrown off his game by the yeah. fact that this writing is impossibly old. In fact, we get that several times. He keeps saying impossible. Everybody keeps saying, well, that's impossible, impossible. Three or four you different times in the first couple of minutes. Word. I do not think it means <laughs> what you think it means. Exactly. 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 It's there. It's possible. It might not be probable. Right. Yeah. That's what, you know, that's what they should have called it. Of course, it doesn't sound as interesting. The pro- improbable planet. Versus, <laughs> yeah. you know. Well, that's pretty good, actually. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually it sounds like a very Doctor Who name. The improbable planet. You even planet. have assonance between the P and improbable and the P and planet. There yeah. you go. So, uh, so they talk, they find out, you know, that they're, they're on the black hole. We've talked about that. They've turned to the name of the planet. The scriptures of the Veltino describe the planet as Croptor, which means the bitter pill, which is a very interesting idea. Uh, and so let's kind of, let's just kind of skip to the, to the, to the underlying premise, which is in an ancient time before the time Lords, which is the doctor says is impossible. Um, there, there, the the people defeated the people of light defeated the devil and imprisoned him in this planet, right. um, around and, the black hole as a kind of prison, right? And that if the they they designed it in such a way that if he ever broke out, it would fall into the black hole, right, uh, and destroy him. <clears throat> so here's my tr- problem: why so not? This just, is an eternal life sentence. Why not just drop him into the black hole? <laughs> Well, there is that. <laughs> well, because it's it's an eternal life sentence. They don't but, want to kill him. They're 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 doing the allegedly humane thing of keeping someone locked up forever, and only having the death penalty as a resort if that doesn't work. Exactly. I guess it just. But you're gonna drop him in the, like <clears throat> you you know you have like literally the, like the worst creature that could cause the most mayhem you know so well, uh, but I, I know really really you. really bleeding heart liberals okay? <laughs> well, they, yeah. they don't even want the death penalty for the devil okay well, okay but but recognize too they had him you know chained up with unobtainium that was unaffected by millions and billions of years still <laughs> holding this creature back so I mean right well and they had a they had the technology to keep a uh, uh, planet on the edge of a black hole for indefinitely so yeah why they didn't have the technology for robot caretakers i don't know <laughs> right <laughs> we have a few prison guards here yeah, yeah exactly exactly um so one of the interesting things we talk about the ood that there was this this episode these episodes could have been a lot worse because originally they were going to have the slavine as the uh slave race <laughs> on on board um, Russell T. Davies must have had something about the Slitheen. He must have really liked them or something. Yeah. And the only thing that saved us from the Slitheen on Sanctuary Base 6 was the fact that repairing the Slitheen costumes was going to cost too much. And so they, <laughs> they just decided to build new alien costumes from scratch, which thank uh, you. <laughs> yeah. That's all we would have needed. Yeah. Yeah, well, also, the, apparently, uh, Russell T. Davies, he thought that the Slitheen would overtake the plot because then you'd have to be, have all of the baggage of those other two episodes and or three episodes and that sort of stuff. You'd have to well, deal with and that. The, and the Slitheen are also conscious and much more complex characters than the Udar at this point. Right. Yep. And and the slavery aspect would become even more uncomfortable. Um, yeah. So do we want to talk about that? Like the, the, the enslavement, you know, the, so we, you know, the, the, there's this future in which the human race Finds this alien race who wants to be slaves. They want to serve. What like so what are the ethics of that? Like uh, if we encounter a, a a race of beings who ask to be enslaved, who want to be enslaved. I, I well, so there's there's. It, 
I, I, there's a question of, are they even slaves? Really? I mean, they're talked about as a basic slave race. It's right. not in, and they, given the way they're treated, okay, they are being treated as slaves. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they're being given orders, some of which don't make any sense. Like, stay where you are. This order cannot be countermanded. All <laughs> only I can undo it. It's like, right. okay, nobody would give that order in the real world. Right. Um, you know, that's just setting us up as an audience so that, so that they can then stand up and have it be dramatic. Um, but, uh, in, 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 in the real world, I could imagine, I mean, we could meet people from another planet that just want to, are incredibly helpful and just want to serve us and do whatever right. we ask and so forth. Okay. That's not logically impossible. So, it, you know, it's, well, it's logically possible it could happen. It wouldn't be slavery if it's voluntary though. Right. Now. And it's, there are, there are, there are cultures in this, uh, in our land, in our world, where hospitality is considered to be one of the highest forms of respect. Yeah. If someone and comes to your house, like uh, some of the Arabic cultures, very much, if you're invited to their house, you are a guest. Therefore, you will be treated with the utmost of hospitality. They will do everything for you. Right. That that custom, in fact, exists. It tends to exist in cultures that exist in very uh, dangerous environments because right. if you get separated from your group, you need to know that you're going to find hospitality and shelter somewhere. Right. And so since anybody can be separated from their group in a hostile environment, everybody in the hostile right. environment has the obligation to show right. hospitality to strangers. So it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a stretch it's, to say that there might be a, a race of beings on another planet somewhere where hospitality is their prime directive so to speak let me now, have, let me play have, devil's advocate for a moment see what i did there oh uh, so oh, <laughs> ooh, two on the nose Dom, sorry. <laughs> but <laughs> but i actually do want to play devil's advocate which is uh this isn't quite hospitality they're not inviting the humans into their homes they're being taken into human custody yeah brought to dangerous places maybe, maybe not against their will but but maybe in their naivete put into danger um, and, and, and in some cases here, I think treated like, well, that's, this is too dangerous for human beings to go into. So let's send the Ood. So there does seem to be a lack of the, of, even, uh, the obligation even, for well, care. And the, yeah. And the, the episode could, does deal with it. You could, yeah. yeah. The episode makes it clear that, or that it disapproves of what's happening right. to the Ood here. Right. Um, but even the, even the too dangerous for humans thing could be justified. It's like if, if you had these incredibly helpful people that wanted to volunteer for the dangerous missions, well, then it could make sense to say, okay, well, mm -hmm. they want to go. Let's send them. Yeah. Um, what, what I was going to say though is because of the instinct the fallen instinct of human beings to exploit others. Mm -hmm. If we did meet some super helpful race, it would tend on our side, if not theirs, to blend into slavery, where we would take their helpfulness and mm -hmm. start to treat them as slaves. Right. Um, <clears throat> because that's given our fallen nature an inclination that humans have I mean, slavery has been the norm through almost all of human history. And these days, we're building robots to replace what used to be <laughs> slaves. Um, and so we're living in a very unusual time in human history. Fortunately, in the developed world, we no longer have slaves. Um, unfortunately, slavery still exists in some part of the world, mm -hmm. uh, some parts. And even in developed countries, it exists illegally. Um, but that fallen tendency is so strong in humans that if we met such a super helpful race, they would tend to fall into our cultural right. pattern of slavery over time. And that would be, uh, uh, the fault of human nature and an abuse of human nature. Right. Am I wrong in remembering, cause I can't find it, um, uh, in notes online that the character of Ronnie, one of the crew of the Starbase, he said he was, he was the ethics officer. Yep. Yes. He's, yeah. Yeah. He's the uh, ethics committee. Ethics committee, and and also the, in charge, in of, the charge of the slaves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that seemed well, a bit ironic. <laughs> oh, I, I find that totally believable today. Yeah. If you want, mm -hmm. if you want to commit some horrible bioethical medical crime, you get an ethics panel to endorse it. <laughs> exactly. So, right. You know, as you the bioethicists are the ones. The 
Yeah, the bioethicists just, are the ones leading the charge into immoral bioethical yeah. behavior. You just you just uh, change the ethics to fit what you want. Right. You know, and, and they, they do talk on the episode that there was an actual like freedom for the Ood movement. Yeah, the friends of humanity. The oh, she's yeah. not one of them, is she? Right, right. Which which is just like you read you read Huckleberry Finn or something, and people are going, "Ooh, those abolitionists." Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. So um, the, there's a bunch of satanic references in this. If you if you catch them as they go by, um, they mention that the gravity funnel that's that allows you to come in, you know, get to and from the planet mm-hmm. must have a power source with an inverted self extrapolating reflex force of six to the power of six every six seconds. Six seconds. Yeah, which that's is six, six six six, the number of the yeah, beast from really from, on the nose there. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. what, uh, one that I think is kind of, I mean, it's there to see, but it's more, it's subtler than that is so in, in Revelation, the beast is described as, you know, the, the beast that ascends from the pit uh, or the deep or however you want to translate it. But that pit image is in there. The word pit is in the King James Version, which has mm-hmm. been influential, obviously, in England. And if you look at this two-parter, it's a series of concentric pits. Right. You have the gravity funnel leading to the planet. You have the laser bore pit leading down to the underground cavern. You have the pit leading to where the beast is, where the yep. doctor stands on a ledge. You have the further pit where the beast himself is. And then the whole thing falls into the black hole, which yep. is another pit. The ultimate pit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's it's reminiscent of Dante's Inferno, which is also a series mm-hmm. of of concentric concentric yeah. pits down into yeah. where Satan himself is not burning, but frozen in ice at yep. the bottom. Uh, and he's kind of, he's not frozen in ice here, but he's yeah. chained right at yep. the center of it all frozen in a, in a, in a form. Um, and, and so we, that's actually a really interesting insight and we get lots of satanic imagery or, or lines. We, uh, Toby, the archeologist, um, gets possessed by the beast. He first, he starts mm-hmm. hearing the voices calling him. Uh, then the writing from the sh- pottery shards ends up uh, transferring, transferring himself to his skin. Uh, which then is he, really creepy. It is creepy. Yep. And then he gets the red eyes, which is, you know, frankly, yeah, anybody gets red eyes. That. That's yeah, that's a bad thing. <laughs> get some drops. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we get lots of lines like uh, the beast and his armies will rise from the pit to make war against God. I mean, that sounds very, very much like something out of Milton. Uh, uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, what's his first name? Uh, Jonathan Milton. John, John Milton. John Milton, um, you know, who also created some of the popular understandings in English, especially of, of yeah. yep. the devil and his armies and the devil will not in, serve. And in Paradise Lost. Paradise. Mm-hmm. Yes. Paradise Lost. Um, and so we get, we get, we have a lot of those literary references here in the, in these two episodes of, from, from Milton, from uh, Dante and from scripture all coming together. And of course they, they, they explain them as, you know, that these, the beast influenced all these various stories from all the different cultures and planets and they're all telling the same story about this beast. Well, that's just the interesting aspect of this is the, de- is the doctor for most of this, it sort of discounts the idea that there is a devil. He he kind of keeps poo-pooing the idea as the evidence mounts that there is something. He also doesn't deny it when Rose asks him for assurance that there is no such thing. Right. Right. So I think he's kind of ambiguous. He doesn't want to believe that there is a devil, but he can't preclude it. I, yeah, well, I, and, I think and I think he even... Okay. Even at the end, he's you know he says, "Okay, well, I'll grant that you do physically exist because I'm looking at you right now, but he still right. won't say that this beast that he's looking at is the literal devil, a, as we a supernatural it. creature." Right? Yeah. Right. Now, what? So, so this gets us to the central religious issue of all of this. Um, you know, we have Britain as a country that's largely lost the Christian faith, uh, even though if there's still a kind of nominal. Christianity that's culturally mm-hmm. dominant there. Um, and Rose typifies that as, you know, a modern Briton who's been really raised without any religious education, um, but is aware of these concepts mm-hmm. and is now being confronted by something that looks very much like them. And um, 
And the doctor is ambivalent about that. And I think that's what we'd expect on this show. Yep. Uh, we're not going to get a hard, this is Christianity is false thing, but we're not going to get a ringing endorsement of it either. Uh, the show seems, based on its prior history, seems to be leaving the question of faith, including Christianity, deliberately open. And so um, so I think that's what we come away with here. And you can really look at it. And I mean, the doctor throws up several interpretations of what the beast may be that aren't closed off for us by the end. Um, Obviously, it seems based on what we're shown in this episode that in the Doctor Who universe, there is something that is very much like the devil that has influenced the -hmm. entire universe. And. Given some of the things we see, particularly the line that the Ood said, the Ood uh, kitchen lady or dinner lady says, um, uh, the the beast will arise from the pit and fight against the forces of God. Okay, well, that's an encapsulation of the standard thing. If devil, therefore God. Right. And um, so you can look at that as an implication that God does exist. Uh, the doctor never hears that line and the, the doctor doesn't draw that inference, but we, the audience can draw that inference if we choose to based on the evidence the mm-hmm. show presents us. Right. The creature, like the, the creature Cause, that's cause in the pit. Go ahead. Everything else in those kind of, those are essentially ideological kind of propaganda statements by the beast. Like mm-hmm. he is away, you will worship him, all that kind of stuff. All those express real interests that the beast has. You know, mm-hmm. he, he he's he's been chained, but not anymore. All of those are kind of propaganda statements of the beast's interests. And yep. if that's the case, then the statement the beast is going to fight against the forces of God. That's one of the beast's interests too. Therefore, there must be forces of God. Right. Right. It, in fact, and there must be a God. Uh, yeah. Therefore. Um, or, or at least some beings that were greater than the beast and imprisoned him. You know, of course, that's kind of yeah. how the doctor explains it. But it, it's you see very much this kind of let's let's you know, kind of a lot of times or there are people in, in the secular realm that want to explain religion as, well, these are you know based off things, you know, real events that have happened or real understandings that people have had. And there's a lot of synchronicity between religions because they're coming from some other common point. Which isn't God, (laughs) which isn't God. It's not it's not actually supernatural. But, you know, we 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 believe in miracles because the early, you know, farmers and the early hunter gatherers would pray to some, you know, earth God and suddenly their crops would grow. Right. And something that like that. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, it, it's, it's funny, but that's that's what people really do. They, you know, we, as as Catholics, we would say. The fact that there are similarities between Catholicism and other religions is because they have elements of the truth of which we have the fullness. That's what we would say. What the secular would say is, oh, no, it's there's other things you're you're all pointing at somewhere here in the past that you've all grown out of. Right. And the doctor kind of buys into that. He talks about, you know, you know, maybe that maybe that's all that the devil is, is an idea of evil. And, and he, and he says, you know, I'll put humans up against the devil any day. And, and it's very much a, a sort of secular humanist sort of, you know, uh, we, if humans band together, we'll naturally fight against whatever f- the idea of evil, which I'm not yeah. sure. And, overcome. I'm not sure history and, proves that, but yeah, <laughs> no. And it, there is, there is a, a kernel of truth there, which is, I mean, what enables the humans to get out of this situation is other than deus ex machina reappearance of the TARDIS following TARDIS separation. Literally um, deus ex machina. The, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, or maybe in this case, machina ex deus. Yes. Yeah. Um, right. But uh, uh, the, um, the Sorry. thing that lets the humans <laughs> make progress in this situation is the fact they band together and banding together represents a form of openness and mm-hmm. ultimately love. You know, the ability to think about more than just oneself. And so that those bonds between humans uh, does show the defeat, the the power that love has to defeat evil. Um, Except what what, what would have been nicer. Well, but they don't they don't survive because they band together. They survive because the devil wants to escape the planet 
in the body of Toby and helps yep. them escape. So it sort of undermines that <clears throat> that whole idea in, in that well, sense. It- it's still things i mean it, there's sort of layers within layers yeah. on one level they're making progress in the situation because they have the capacity of love and trust and so forth and self sacrifice um, and self sacrifice mm-hmm. um the devil is actually using that against them to try to escape mm-hmm. but then if you if you want to take it there and there is a god based on the episode god is using the devil's plan against him and so ultimately love triumphs in the end anyway. Right. Now, what would have been nicer is if they had, and it could still be ambiguous, but it would have been artistically nicer if they'd had some kind of ambiguous acknowledgement of God in as, as a possible mover in this situation mm-hmm. by just something as simple as Rose saying, God, I don't know if you exist, but if you do, please help us. Right. And move sure. on. Right. You know? It doesn't even have to be like because, some sort of unexplained thing that saves them. Yeah, because it that's <laughs> that's what humans do. If right. you if you are aware there's a possibility of help from this God that you've heard about in your childhood mm-hmm. and and suddenly you've been given evidence that something like God may exist because something like the devil sure does. Yeah. Um, then it would just make sense to say, I don't know here, but if you're there, please help. But just remember, remember, though, this is the same series that a couple of seasons later, we just talked about uh, Amy, young Amelia Pond praying to Santa at Easter time. (laughs) So, I mean, I can't hold out much hope for that. But (laughs) you could say that proves my point because um, because uh, it's a very human thing to do. And we it's so human. We see a religiously uneducated child like Amy Pond trying to do just that. Right trying to pray as best she can with what she has. True. Yeah. You know, speaking of like of religion, at one point the doctor, you know, says that the devil's tale, uh, you know, which, what religion are you from? And he says all of them. And, uh, and says, talks about how the forces of light impris- chained him in the pit before time. And the doctor says it's impossible. And the beast says, is that your religion? That it's impossible? Yeah, that's a yes. great line. Yeah. And the doctor kind of later on kind of says, he kind of outlines what his, his belief is. He says, uh, um, I believe I haven't seen everything. Uh, I don't know. It's funny, isn't it? The things you make up, the rules. If that thing had said it came from beyond the universe, I'd believe it. But before the universe, impossible. It doesn't fit my rule. Still, that's why I keep traveling to be proved wrong. So he's talking well, about having an open mind. Like, like I have these these limits that I say that's impossible. But maybe what is the famous line? There are more things, uh, Horatio. In um, heaven and earth and are dreamt of in your philosophy. Right. Shakespeare. And uh, I should know that my wife would be mad Hamlet. at me. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> my wife's an English pro- professor. Um, and mm-hmm. I should, so I should know this. Um, but it shows like the doctor is basically saying that his religion is I'm a seeker. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for, uh, I know that I've created these boundaries, but well, maybe and, those and boundaries str- are wrong. He struggles, and, and, and he struggles just, with them too, because he, he even says, you know, something before the time Lords, that's impossible. It's like, <laughs> No, it's quite probable there was something before the Time Lords. <laughs> well, they had to come from somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Right. The also um, now what he might mean there is like conditions in the world were too chaotic, in the universe were too chaotic for anything. The Time Lords were the first race to arise. And yeah. we've explored all of time and space. So we know there wasn't anything before or something like that. That seems to be contradicted by other elements Correct. in the series, though, like the great vampires in the Dark Ages. Um, at the beginning of the universe. Yep. But um, the what I find interesting about this premise is the the it's so impossible that there was anything before this before time. It's like, dude, that's like really an overly simplistic understanding of the Big Bang. Even mm-hmm. now. Right. There's lots of talk about what might about prior universes that could be conceived exactly. of before ours. Well, there's a whole thing um, now late Stephen Hawking got into some controversy where he tried to say, well, you know, when Christianity says everything was created out of nothing, what they really meant was quantum flux and all this other stuff. And and Christians were like, literally nothing. There was nothing yeah. quantum. There was nothing below quantum. There was why nothing is, before quantum. Why did you? Yeah, I know. Even if you say everything came from quantum fluctuations, what causes quantum fluctuations we still need an explanation for that right there has to be the uncaused cause uh, exactly philosophical philosophical idea 
Um, a couple of things I want to uh, get to before we, I want to talk about Rose and the doctor as our last bit, but a couple of yeah, interesting we, bits too. Uh, did you have something, Jimmy? Well, I just wanted to, we've kind of, you know, talked about the conceptual background of this episode. Yeah. I, I was hoping we could talk about it artistically at some point. Sure. I mean, we could go get, I was going to kind <clears> of <throat> uh, get into some of that now. So uh, do, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, so I thought this was a very interesting pair of stories. I thought that mm -hmm. it had uh, some really nice moments. Um, I really liked it when the doctor was descending into the pit and thinking of Rose. Mm -hmm. Um, I liked, you know, like when the, when the beast says to the doctor, is that your religion and turns the tables on him and all the doctor can come up with it for the moment is it's a belief. Um, and, yeah. and, and there's a bunch of nice stuff. The symbols transferring to the guy is effectively creepy. Um, the fact that Toby is possessed by the devil and hiding it to manipulate everything to his mm -hmm. benefit. That's nice. Um, but there are also a bunch of ham fisted things in this that I, I, that I didn't like. Um, one of them is with, when we first get an indication that Toby is, um, is possessed, it's because, I mean, we could guess it before then, but when it's mm -hmm. confirmed for us is when they're doing the cliched, you know, air vent chase and, um, and Toby turns around to the possessed Ood and his eyes go red and he winks at them to indicate. Does the shush. Yeah. The, yeah, the finger over and, the mouth. Yeah. And it's, it's like, okay. Um, why would he do that if he's mentally in control of all of them? Right. You know, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, we have, I, and I mentioned this one earlier, but we have really just ham-fisted writing things like the ridiculous orders of all of the un, all of the non-involved ood in this operation are going to be confined to their habitat. And, okay, fine. You just say, okay, we're going to have only, we want to keep the area clear, so all of you ood go back to your habitat. That's all you need mm -hmm. to say. You don't need, I am ordering you to stay exactly where you are now. Do not move. <laughs> this order cannot be countermanded. Listen only to my orders. Yes. And and then they all stand up. You know, <laughs> it, I mean, it's, that's just cheap, you know, drama, cheaply setting something up so it can be dramatic. So, um, so I thought there were flawed bits throughout a lot of it, but I still thought it was a very interesting um, and entertaining para stories as a whole. I, I felt like the, um, it was super creepy. I felt mm -hmm. it was effectively creepy in both episodes. The design of the chained beast was over the top for me. I mean, uh, not over top of yeah, the bad oh, yeah. way. Like it was, that was really a scary d uh, beast. Uh, I, I, in fact, I don't really like looking at it, but quite honestly, it just, <laughs> I'm not a horror the, movie fan. I, one of the things I liked in the visual design of the beast, you know, it has these long curled horns, yeah. but I like that one of them has been broken off yeah. partway mm. up. So it's like, that's a scar of the battle before time. Right. And I like that. On the other hand, it's dentistry is really bad. <laughs> um, exactly. I mean, the it's, it's got this big hole where part of its teeth should be. Right, right. Uh, and uh, apparently his breath is really bad because it breathes fire uh, a couple of times. Um, yeah. It, so, yeah, I mean, it's and it's huge. Uh, it, it, you know, it's it's imposing. Um, yeah, I. Some of the bits that I really I, I kind of liked. There was the when Scooty, poor Scooty, uh, the young lady who's the the uh, was first the, to die, the maintenance trainee, yep. the first to die. She gets uh, sucked out by uh, Toby out into space. Um, but and, and when when she dies, there's a quote. Um, Jefferson, who's oh, yeah. the head of security, recites mm -hmm. a verse from Horatius, a poem by uh, Thomas Babington uh, Macaulay, and he says, uh, "And how can a man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his mm -hmm. gods?" I'm like, well, that is kind of that's a kind of a cool line, and it fits because they're. You know they're in a you know a place of the ashes of their fathers, where they face fearful odds against the actual beast defending the yep. temples of our of our God. You know the you know that sort of idea. Uh, so it's and it's appropriately British. I mean that's the sort of thing a, mm -hmm. a stiff upper lip British military man would say. You know uh, in in honor of of a fallen comrade. Uh, so uh, that was a good one. Um, and I also like how Jefferson. Gave his life. Uh, he's the mm -hmm, security mm -hmm. guy, and he 
stays behind to help them escape. I like how the beast has preternatural knowledge of people's yes. pasts. And in the case, in his case, um, we know his, his he did something that his wife never forgave him for. Yes. Right? But we never learn what it is. And I really some, like that. Some kind of betrayal or something like that. You know? Or disappointment yep. or who knows. But it, something significant. That comes out, and, of a, out of a Christian theology, though, like how the devil uses our our, right. our weaknesses yeah. and our regrets against us in his temptations. Well, well and, then, and, 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 and this then exact phenomenon is reported in the cases of lots of exorcisms. Yep. Yeah. Well, and then there's you know, and then there's Rose where he knows how to rattle her. Well, mm-hmm. you're going to die in battle soon. Right. Yes. And the the trick is, and the doctor even says at the end, that's a lie. But the trick is you don't know exactly what's the lie and what's not. Because right. there is an interest in lying to you. Right. And and so we what the beast, the beast knows that Jackson's wife had something to forgive him about. And then tells him she didn't, which Jackson right. didn't know. So that part may be a lie. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And maybe she actually did forgive him and we don't know. Yeah, that's uh, but he that's how the devil works is he he undermines us with a little bit of the truth and a little bit of a lie and makes us oh, despair. Twist, twist things just a little bit. Right. Yeah. And in, in fact, you kind of use this on the doctor. As, and I thought, I thought this was interesting. As the doctor descends into this into this pit, um, the devil is trying to tempt him. And it's like the mm-hmm. temptation in the mm-hmm. wilderness. As Jesus was in the desert for 40 days the, what, that we commemorated with Lent, uh, yeah. Jesus was tempted by the, by the devil. And, and the devil is tempting. The, so the doctor, obviously, is a sort of Jesus figure in this. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in this scenario, but he's being tempted by the devil uh, as he as he's descending into this this emptiness, this and, pit. And, and and even before they um they he's tempted and he, they talk about the temptation yep. when you're confronted with a pit to want to just go ahead and jump. And right, why that is? That's a very human thing, right? That idea of yeah. standing in a high place and that little voice in the back that keeps saying jump, jump, jump. Yeah, exactly. That's why I don't now, like high I, places. <laughs> I liked the evolutionary explanation they offer for that, that it's part of our brains based on our primate ancestry calculating, can we make it to the next branch? What right. would it be like to take that leap? Um, and that's that's neat. Um, what I thought was less neat here is they make a the, the, they get to the edge of this pit and they're going, hmm, how do we open this? I bet if we could read these unreadable writings, it would tell us how to open it. And then it opens anyway on its own. Right. Yep. Right. So what's the point? Should have just been open? You yeah. know, yeah, that was kind of silly. Or they could have said it's triggered. It's opening is triggered by the approach of people. But right. You know, or something. But and then you go, why do prison doors open automatically? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, well, I mean, it could have been as simple as just have a big switch on the wall. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, in fact, one of the things the doctor says, speaking of like how the devil uses our uh, what he knows about us against us, the doctor kind of poo-poos that by saying, you know, this is, that's how the devil works, someone says. And the doctor says, or a good psychologist. Like, yeah, that was a great line, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's talk about the doctor and Rose, their relationship in this episode, as again, like we said at the beginning, as we're heading toward the end of Rose's time uh, on the series as a companion. Um, we see her falling into the doctor's my boyfriend. They think that they're stranded here. The the TARDIS has fallen into this hole. Uh, there's no way to get it as far as they as far as they understand. Um, and they're they're probably stranded here, if not on this planet, at least in this time period. And mm-hmm. they the doctor and Rose start talking about and he's and he's talking about like I'm going to have to get a job. I'm going to have to settle down and get a mortgage. And and Rose kind of hints maybe we get a mortgage together. You know and oh yeah. And and it's so this the doctor as my boyfriend kind of kicks in. Um, I, I, personally, I find this a little forced. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Rose and the doctor in some episodes display some chemistry, but they don't display it enough um, to to carry the emotional weight of some of this. I don't think. Um, and and some of that. I'm kind of of two minds about this because to some extent I can imagine the doctor saying, even though I'm tempted by Rose, I'm going to be distant because I'm, I have this companion doctor 
thing that I'm committed to and I'm not prepared to deviate from that, um, despite the fact I'm interested in her. And you see something of that happening with him, but it's just to the extent that makes sense, it undermines the the emotion of all of this. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of an a, an intellectual, in a way, puzzle for the doctor. He's not allowing himself to feel these emotions and and it undermines the drama in that way. So all of this feels a little artificial and intellectual and and inauthentic to me. In the doctor, in other other times, we'll talk about a duty of care to his companions. So I think later on, under um, mm-hmm. um, Stephen Moffat, we you hear that phrase a lot: a duty of care. And it, and it feels like the doctor should have that sense of a duty of care, this this dedication. Without it having to be romantic, this is the thing mm-hmm. that bugs me so often. Is is in TV shows in general, where where we ha- always have to create these romantic connections when it could just yes. simply be friendship, com- literally companionship uh, with well, one another mm-hmm. that that motivates us to care for mm-hmm. one another. And and that's the way it is in classic who's, and especially like with Peter Davison's Doctor, right? Um, who just like with Nissa, he's they're just friends, but they're very right. close friends. Right. And and this, well, th- there was a time when that could happen. But I think in modern storytelling in this t- day and age, I don't think people like it's the whole uh, when Harry met Sally thing, men and women can't be friends. You know, well, idea. we had that with Bill and not just because Bill was gay, but because of the age difference between right. her and the doctor. But I think because of the gay thing as well, I think that was uh, intentional. I think they wanted to get away from the doctor as my boyfriend. And I think they imposed uh, like they created this this chasm. Uh, of of mm-hmm. two parts to to so that they wouldn't have to have you know because otherwise if she were not gay if she and if she were a little they're closer in age we they would naturally everyone would be saying well they'd be as we say to, today we'd be shipping them you know putting them in a relationship right. um, I mean just well, the, people just, are probably doing that anyway right and it's just it it's a tiresome sort of idea I mean to kind of go back to it earlier time uh, in fan fiction. Uh, Star Trek, there was this fan fiction movement back in the 70s and 80s to kind of put Kirk and Spock together. Hey, slash fiction. Right. Yep. Guy, guys can be friends. <laughs> let, exactly. Let, let men be friends with each other without yeah. having even, to impose this. They even said it. I am and always have been your friend. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, Bilbo and Frodo. And and in fact, um the doctor's relationship with his companions, I think, bears a, stra- a strong resemblance to a, a classic British um, uh, re- set of relationships between, like, an officer and an aide de camp. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and you see it in classic movies, but also just in real life, where an officer would have a, a, a servant who is as close to him as a brother, or even closer. There was no romantic relationship necessarily. I mean, presumably, you know, that could have happened. It, Humans being humans. humans, being humans. Right. But but in general, it was it was a very close relationship. Like think Sam and Frodo in the Lord of the Rings. Right. Um, and and people have people have made that accusation. Right. That exactly. What, what Tolkien was describing there was more than just a deep companionship and friendship. Or, you know, we could go to J- uh, Jesus and the John, the apostle, the the, mm-hmm. the one who Jesus loved. And we, or Mary Magdalene. For right. That matter, too. Right. But, they, but yes, he, Jesus could love John and John could love Jesus and even, you know, rest upon his chest and it not be something more. Well, <laughs> and that's what I kind of want wait, from wait, this. Wait, wait, wait. If, if we're going to mention that, we should explain the cult because one guy resting on another's chest doesn't make sense in our culture right. unless it's, it's sexual. Right. In their culture, they didn't they ate at tables um reclining low to the ground they yeah. didn't lying on the floor they didn't have chairs and so since you're lying on the ground the way they would do it is they would lie in sequence and uh crowd around the table in such a way that i that i would be halfway up your torso eating and then what john does in the gospel is he like leans back to ask yep. jesus a question right exactly but but you know jesus and and John are you know often list, you know mentioned in the same breath as is very closer than the other apostles in that sense. Right. Maybe that's, John was the beloved disciple. The beloved disciple, and and maybe that's just John wrote it that way in his gospel. But but, but yeah. regardless, this is kind of what sense I, in which it's true. Yes, that I would I wish we could have in in Doctor Who this relationships where they're just 
friends. And this is kind of what I'm hoping for with um, the 13th Doctor, with Jodie Whittaker mm-hmm. and her companions. Uh, and it, maybe that's going to be the case because uh, looking at the ages and things, there's an older male companion, apparently. There's two younger ones, uh, a male and a female. I'm kind of hoping we can get to it. Like maybe by having a female doctor, we'll get away from the doctor as well, in this case, my girlfriend uh, situation and just have the doctor and the, and her friends. Now, now Dom, so. this, this, this rant wasn't influenced by the Magnum PI trailer that dropped <laughs> this week as we're recording it this week. Yes. The new Magnum PI. Uh, if you're of an age and you know, the classic Magnum PI TV show from the eighties with uh, starring Tom Selleck, uh, the new Magnum PI has a lot of the same characters, uh, but changes Higgins from uh, Robert Hellerman, Jonathan Hellerman, Hellerman, Jonathan Hellerman, who a great classic British actor, who was who was in the in in the time he was a World War II veteran soldier older uh, uh, old guard old world proper gentleman proper gentleman whereas Thomas Magnum was a Vietnam War veteran American New World kind of loosey goosey and that created that 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 great tension between them now uh, in the new uh, Hawaii Five O uh, Higgins is now played by a beautiful young woman who is a super spy MI six type yep. and. And there, there's obviously in the pilot, there's uh, antagonism, but it's c- quite clear that this is a precursor to romantic tension. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you've ruined this. I mean, in other ways as well. But it's like they've ruined this great relationship because you've got to insert this romantic notion into the relationship yeah. where where we could have this other great relationship that was already there. Right. And I sus- hope and suspect that you're right, that we're not going to have that in forthcoming times in Doctor Who for a while. Yes, yes. The, at least within this set of companions. Um, okay, so um, now that now that I get that off my chest, ooh, thanks, guys. <laughs> breathe, <laughs> breathe. <laughs> um, anything else we want to talk about? I mean, uh, Rose taking command, you know, in the absence of the Doctor, Rose kind of takes that charge. Nice. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it, 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 the the classic idea of the the when the doctor's away, uh, com- the companion who's been with him sort of becomes the substitute doctor in a sense. I, I, I thought that actually the the reasoning she was using was a little thin, like the doctor was te- when he got cut off. The doctor was telling us a lot more than he actually was, apparently. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but desperation gets you to go to interesting places. And that was definitely Rose being desperate. So I thought it worked on balance. Yep. So uh, another interesting uh, bit, the doctor has said at one point that TARDISes are grown, not built. Yes. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're grown from coral and uh, and from a kind of coral. <laughs> interesting. And, and later the doctor will give someone a piece of this coral. We'll see that. Okay. I, th- I don't remember that happening, but okay. I, that's good. Um, and in fact, he, he, he believes at this point, because we, we, we have not got to the day of the doctor with the return of um, 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 Gallifrey. He believes this TARDIS is the last TARDIS in the universe and now is right. lost yep. in this pit. Yeah. Um, we do have uh, uh, David oh, Tennant. By the way, yeah. this is a classic trope. I mean, just we have two plot drivers that frequently recur in Doctor Who. Right from the beginning. (laughs) Yeah. One is companion separation, where the Doctor gets separated from one Mm -hmm. or more companions. The other is TARDIS separation. Right. And TARDIS separation occurs very early in this story, and it occurs very early in the next story that we're going to do. And in the last Um, story we talked about. (laughs) And and it's, it's a necessary plot driver because they need the TARDIS to get them to an exotic location but then they need to be separated from the TARDIS by one means or another. So they can't immediately leave the exotic well, location and that, and that's, as soon that's as it again, gets dangerous. And again, we commented on that right at the beginning of the recording where it's like, you know, the Rose and the doctor are, they're, they're putting their pointing right at it. It's right on the nose. Oh, we should get back in and take off again. Ah, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. You're right. Yeah. Like <laughs> that's ever going to happen on this series. Uh, <laughs> and, and yeah. So that, yes, it's that because the TARDIS is such a powerful tool, it can travel through time and space. It would be the obvious solution to half of the plot devices of <laughs> in, in all the stories. Oh, look, Daleks jump in the TARDIS and disappear. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> um, and then we do get uh, we do get the David Tennant in its classic line when he sees Scooty uh, floating off her body floating off into space. 
I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. So, so we do line reading this time. Yep. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, He's done it better. He has done it better. Uh, so uh, anything I else you want? The real reason is it doesn't really fit. Right. When no. he says that line and it means something, he's talking directly to a person, not a body floating in space. That right. Hear him. Right. This is true. This is true. Um, anything else you want to say about this episode uh, before I get to the feedback? Um, no, let's hear the feedback. So this is from uh, on our Facebook page. Amy Flowers uh, talking about when we talked about the girl in the fireplace a couple, uh, couple of the episodes ago. Uh, she says, great analysis as always. I had an observation about Moffat's episodes during the Davies era, or at least about most of the episodes. Not a criticism, or maybe not even valid, but it crossed my mind, she says. In the stories Moffat tells, there isn't much room for the full-time companions. So he either ignores or removes them, we were just talking about companion separation, so he can focus on his own characters interacting with the Doctor. So Rose and Mickey are sidelined, he in Girl in the Fireplace, um... Uh, so that he can be with uh, Madame Pompadour. Martha and the Doctor himself are almost non-existent in Blink. So we get those mm -hmm. characters that Moffat has created. Um, uh, and Donna is cast off into the virtual world, so River's importance can be established uh, later on. Um, I'm not sure which episode she's thinking about in that. Is oh, it, she's she's the thinking fireplace? of Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead. Okay, okay, the... Yeah, Donna is cast off. Right, okay, okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, in The Empty Child, uh, Doctor Dances, Rose is separated from the Doctor through much of the story um, with Jack, while the Doctor's hanging around with the girl, um, who is the mother uh, there. Um, she does have her own storyline with Jack, but th that's how this seems to happen. Uh, she says it's not necessarily a bad thing. It might not, not even be unique to, to Moffat's stories. Uh, it could happen in other stories, maybe. Um, as the Doctor and his companions are often separated in earlier adventures. But usually the companion has his or her own storyline that ties in with the Doctor's. Um, I find it interesting how you mentioned Renette being almost like the Doctor's equal and how that surfaces again with River. Uh, mm -hmm. While both characters certainly display traits that would challenge slash interest the Doctor, I'm glad neither becomes full-time companions because if they were equal, where would the tension and growth be? Although we did see that in Classic Who where... Um, we had uh, the Time Lady, um, Romana. Romana. And also Zoe before her. Yeah. The, who were somebody, you and know, equals. Yeah. yeah. And also the third Doctor's first companion was kind of like that. Right. But she didn't last very long. She No, they, they got rid of her for, for precisely that reason. She was too much as equal. So interesting. I thought uh, Amy's um, comments here were, were interesting. And uh, mm -hmm. I th I felt it was on target the, This that Moffat had this tendency to kind of want to um, – insert his own in, in the in the Davies era sort of sideline the doctor's companion and see his like his characters would do in uh in their place uh, which mm -hmm. is very interesting um Renette Madame Pompadour is a mm -hmm. lot like River in some ways not quite as sassy but but there's still some sassy there <laughs> um and a little like Amy and you know, I mean I could see I could see um elements of all of those later companions in in her so um, what did you guys think? Yeah, I, I, I think it's worth thinking about. In some cases, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I'd view it in quite the same way with with Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead. Donna, I, I would view Donna not so much as being sidelined in favor of River as just her her being in the virtual world is just another case of companion separation. Right. Um, and and that's a common thing. And then typically when when you have new when you have guest stars, um, the guest cast, at least some of them will tend to play more prominent roles mm -hmm. than others. Um, although in in some episodes, like I'm thinking of 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 the episode Into the Dalek, yeah. early Peter Capaldi. You have this kind of team of space marines that are in charge of the Dalek, and we kind of meet a couple of them, but none are as promising or as interesting as River. River is really something. She when she comes barreling into into that first episode, <laughs> yeah, this is unpre and it's she's deliberately unprecedented. She's a companion from the Doctor's future that he doesn't know, so sure. that of itself is going to attract a bunch of attention. Yeah, and uh, and the the appearance of Alex Kingston. I mean, she was a a known known to the American audiences at least, um, having been on um, 
some Ugh. medical show. Yeah, what's, Grey's Anatomy, she, I think, wasn't it? No, well, I don't think. Well, uh, before that, before that, um, oh, oh, the one that George Clooney kind of had his start on. Um, Saint Elsewhere. No, that was oh, Mark Herman. Um, ER. 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 Yeah, ER. Okay. Yeah. I haven't watched any of these shows, so I'm one of the Americans <laughs> that did not know Alex Kingston before River Song. <laughs> okay. For some reason, I didn't think she was on ER, but maybe I'm wrong on that. But yeah, yeah it's yes, yeah, oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, yep, yep. Um, so, but so in that sense, it's like she was uh, a known guest star, maybe get you know getting a bit um, bigger uh, part because of that as well. You know, but I I, I take your point, uh, Jimmy, that uh, maybe that maybe that Science in the Library doesn't quite fit that pattern. Yeah, but in the case of like Madame de Pompadour, it it does, and it, Moffat is clearly interested in this character idea. And basically, you take Madame de Pompadour and split her in half, and she becomes River Song and Amy Pond, right. the the romantic interest and the girl yep. who waited. I kind of wish that New Who would do what Old Who was was okay with, I and mean, we might have talked about this before, which is taking people from different time periods, not just twenty first mm -hmm. century British women. Yeah, you know, uh, but like, yep. like, like Jamie from the Scotsman from the 18th century, yep. and or Madame de Pompadour from the 18th century, and and travel with them and see what that's like because I think that would be fascinating. I would love to see yeah. that happen in New Who, and uh, it looks like, although we can't be sure, like we're continuing that with the 13th Doctor, the the yep the same thing, the um, current time frame, yeah. Yeah, and a little, little more gender and age diversity, but still 21st century England just stuck in this rut. Yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, I would love to, you know, hey, pick up an Aztec, which <laughs> is <laughs> we almost connects. do. We almost do. Right. <laughs> but well, that's that's next week. So I think that's I think we should uh, uh, cut it off there um, and we'll ask for the listeners. You know, what do you think of uh, this two-parter impossible planet in the satan pit do you have any thoughts on it please share them with us would we miss an, something uh relating to the you know the the the, the devil here in this uh, episode because the devil is in the details as they say um oh though did you and what did you think of amy flowers's comment about uh moffat's tendency to uh include his own characters to the detriment of the companions uh let us know uh by visiting sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. Leave us some feedback or send us an email to Who at sqpn.com. Uh, you can find links to all of our personal social media and websites on our show notes at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time uh, when we'll be discussing, as I just hinted, the first Doctor story, the, the William Hartnell story, The Aztecs, uh, a, a great historical. Uh, until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the Secrets of Doctor Who. Glad to be here, and thank you, Dom. Uh, Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening, and remember, the beast is alone, we are not. When will I see you again? Uh, soon, I expect. Or later. One of those.